You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Old Man's Creek, three miles east of the Sockholm Village, is where the 1st Army Group hatches up and gets near about seven miles from Blackhawk's main camp. 275 militia under the command of Major Isaiah Stillman were camped there. And a pattern that we're going to see throughout these events is that the Indian tribes, other Indian tribes, are the source of information both for Chief Black Hawk and often for the U.S. military. They're providing information for Chief Black Hawk because they agree with his cause. A lot of them do. And other tribes, or sometimes the same tribes, are providing information to the U.S. military because they want to be seen in a good light. We're going to see this play out throughout this conflict known as Black Hawk's War in our textbook. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Stillman is camped there. Black Hawk learns that the American camp is nearby, and he sends emissaries. And they don't come back. He relates this in his autobiography. I immediately started three young men with a white flag to meet them and conduct them to our camp, that we might hold a council with them and descend Rock River again. I also directed them, in case the whites had encamped to return, I would go to see them. Then he sends more emissaries, and they're shot at. Now he's got no other choice. He's got to put up a fight. After this party I started, I sent five young men to see what might take place. The first party went to the camp of the whites. They were taken prisoners. The last party had not proceeded far before they saw about 20 men coming at them at full gallop. They stopped, and finding that the whites were coming towards them in a warlike attitude, they turned and retreated, but were pursued. Two of them were overtaken and killed. This is an account um, from more from the settler side. He's sympathetic to the Indians. It's in a 1903 history of the Black Hawk War. Soon after preparing to camp, we saw three Indians approach us bearing a white flag, and these, upon coming up, were made prisoners. A second deputation of five were pursued by some 20 of our mounted militia, and two of them killed while the other three escaped. One of the party that bore the white flag was, out of the most cowardly vindictiveness, shot down while standing prisoner in camp. The whole detachment after these atrocities now bore down upon the camp of Black Hawk, whose braves, with the exception of some 40 or 50, were way at a distance. What follows is going to be called the Battle of Stillman's Creek. And essentially what goes on is, Chief Blackhawk has sent out a party of truce. I was preparing my flags to meet the war chief, the Americans. The alarm was given. Nearly all my young men were absent 10 miles away. I started with what I had left, about 40 braves, and then proceeded but a short distance before we saw a part of the army approaching. I raised a yell, saying to the braves, some of our people have been killed. 
wantonly, and cruelly murdered. We must avenge their death. In a while, we discovered the whole army coming towards us, at a full gallop. We were now confident that our first party, the first group that he sent out, had been killed. I immediately placed my men behind a cluster of bushes, that we might be the first to fire when they approached close enough. They made a halt some distance of us. And that's when I decided. I gave a yell and ordered my brave warriors to charge upon them, expecting that they would all be killed. Every man rushed towards the enemy and fired, howling. And they retreated in the utmost confusion and consternation before my little but brave band of warriors. This is about 40 of Blackhawk's men charging at hundreds. This is the story of a scout that had at one point lived with Indians and now was helping the U.S. Army find them. As we rode up, a galling and destructive fire was poured in upon us by them, who after discharging their guns, sprung from their coverts on either side with their usual horrible yells and continued the attack with their tomahawks and knives. My comrades fell around me like leaves. And happening to cast my eyes behind me, I beheld the whole detachment of the militia flying from the field. Some four or five of us were left unsupported in the midst of the foe. Here's from Lieutenant Asael Gridley. It was a perfect stampede with Stillman's men. Some of them got their horses, but lots of them got away on foot. And after the Indians had killed 11 of our men, they went back to Stillman's camp and cut the spokes out of the wagons and poured out a barrel of whiskey. Well, we lay our arms the next night on the south side of the creek, for we had left our tents at Dixon's Ferry. Here's from a history of the Black Hawk War assembled by the Illinois State Library System in 1970. Stunned by the sudden and furious onslaught of Black Hawk, the troops wheeled to retreat, yelling as they fled, engines, engines, like the madmen they now truly became. As the troops came headlong on, Captain Adams, than whom no braver man ever lived, attempted to make a stand with a handful of companions upon the brow of the hill, which lies about a mile south to the creek, to cover the retreat of the fugitives. Darkness was upon them, and they had no reason to believe that less than the full force of 800 was upon them. Yet they stood their ground to sell their lives as dearly as possible, to save those by who the delay might reach points of safety. There were 2,500 of us with shotguns and rifles and muskets, all flintlocks, and we were mounted, all but two or three companies. We picked up nine dead men as we came from Dixon's Ferry on a forced march the next morning. The last two that we found were Major Perkins and Captain Adams. Their heads skinned and left. From author Frank Stevens, it was a case clear panic. Men were crazed. They who in a sober moment would have walked straight to death without a protest. They who would bend to no command of a superior officer. They who would obey. They who would not obey or follow were driven as easily as a flock of panic-stricken sheep. It has been said and written that whiskey was the cause of this uh, cause of this unfortunate rout. It's hopelessly improbable in the face of the fact that the two casts were taken in the baggage train for 275 men. Uh, Chief Blackhawk says, I was never so much surprised in my life as I was in this attack. An army of three or four hundred men, after having learned that we were suing for peace, 
to attempt to kill the flag bearers that had gone unarmed to ask for a meeting of the war chiefs of the two contending parties to hold a council, that I might return to the west side of the Mississippi to come forward with a full determination to demolish the few braves I had with me, to retreat when they had ten to one. All these events were unaccountable to me. This from Edwin Hoyt Zachary Taylor about the aftermath of Stillman's run. It was too late by the time Zachary Taylor and the other regular soldiers arrived to parley with the Indians. They had fled into the most impenetrable jungles of the Rock River region. From there, they began a series of raids on white settlements, killing men, women, and children who lived in settlements and lonely cabins along the Illinois and Michigan territory frontiers. Zachary's problems were endless. He was in a strange territory where there was little to be found in the way of supplies. They could be brought up river from military posts, but since the Indians would not wait, he was forced to march with his men on short rations and without proper military equipment most of the time. The Illinois State Library in 1970. Black Hawk War might have been avoided at any time up until the evening of May the 14th, 1832, if it had not been. The incompetence of Stillman's militia could have ended then, either by negotiation or the capture of Black Hawk. The consequence of that inglorious skirmish was a campaign which ended in the most complete annihilation of Black Hawk's band, a demoralization of the Sauk and Fox Nation, an untold hardship and inconvenience to thousands of white persons, to say nothing of the impetus camp life gave to the spread of the cholera epidemic. Reviewing the circumstances from which these unhappy events flowed, the anthropologist and the historian may perhaps draw one conclusion. The prime emotional factors in the entire situation were the white man's attitude of contempt for persons of alien color and culture, and the Indian's bitter resentment, and of gradual demoralization under that contempt. In a world where small and foolish wars as the Black Hawk campaign can be sparks which ignite an entire planet. The news of Stillman's defeat by 2,000 bloodthirsty Indian warriors spread fast, far and wide, and the governor of Illinois called for more volunteers. When the news reached Washington, the Secretary of War ordered General Scott, then in New York, to take a 1,000 soldiers and proceed to the seat of war and take command of the army. This violation of a flag of truce, the wanted murder of its bearers, and the attack upon a mere remnant of Black Hawk's band when suing for peace, precipitated a war that perhaps could have been avoided. Major Isaiah Stillman will live to rue the day that he headed up this group, because what was then Old Man's Creek will become Stillman's Creek or Stillman's Run. And yes, that Meaning is intended as a double entendre, that it's both a run, an area, and also Stillman's men ran. Surprisingly enough, what happens to Major Stillman? He goes from major to general. He gets a promotion. Here's um, John Hall again from An Uncommon Defense. As Black Hawk headed to Rock River, Ho-Chunks, who supported his cause, offered to guide him. They also killed a courier, William Durley, and delivered his scalp to Black Hawk. Then they turned on an agent, Felix St. Vrain, and three others, which in settlers' newspapers is going to be the St. Vrain Massacre, 
was 35 miles from Galena, Illinois, considered to be the heart of settler country. Newspapers attributed it to Blackhawk, though he did not order this attack. A group of disaffected Potawatomi's were aggrieved that a white settler named William Davis had built a dam six miles above their Indian village, which cut off the flow of fish. Discerning opportunity in Black Hawk's tactical victory at Stillman's Run, disaffected Ho-Chunks and Potawatomis lashed out at their American tormentors. For years, grievances had been building up, gratifying to a few The attacks vindicated the white settlers' views and the views of the Illinois state government that they couldn't be trusted and they could no longer live among them. But the main tribe of Potawatomis didn't want this and offered their services to the U.S. Army. Eventually, General Atkinson's going to actually accept for the first time ever and there's going to be a Native American force in the U.S. Army. The Potawatomis held the area that's around the area of Chicago. Now, Chicago was there. We're going to talk about that in a bit. But the area around it is where they held. They asked him to remove it. He would not. They appealed to local authorities. Nobody would get him to change. Now, with Blackhawk's entry into Illinois, they took revenge. They invaded the Davis farm. Fifteen men were killed. Women were kidnapped. Blackhawk and his band knew they didn't win a victory. Just a kind of push-off for the moment. And they abandoned the idea now of retaking their village and went north where they could hide. They were pretty well entrenched in an area of four lakes uh, on the Wisconsin border. And if it was only about what the militia, the U.S. Army, the settlers knew or could find out, they would never have found them. But there's two problems. One is that they're running out of food and there isn't a lot of food in the area they're in. And the second is that information is coming from tribes. Some of it's coming to Black Hawk, but there are also elements supplying information to the U.S. Army. Not all of it is good. Some groups provide disinformation to the U.S. Army. Some that are sympathetic to Black Hawk tell them, oh, he's over here, and actually end up tying up Atkinson in a lot of wasted time. But they can't count on this forever. Black Hawk needs food, too. For all the talk that this is the Black Hawk War, it could be called the Corn War. Black Hawk wants his village, which were surrounded by plentiful cornfields that squatters then took. He wants to find new places to plant corn. This is the whole reason across the river. Where the town of Elizabethtown stands today, they find a fort at Apple River that is only partially finished. They decide to attack it as they move towards it. The local population, what would form a militia in this area, grab their weapons, bring their families, and go to this fort at Apple River and decide to make a defense. Now here, from settler accounts of the Black Hawk War, it is a veritable Alamo. 20 to 30 militiamen and their families huddle in the fort, staving off an attack from a much larger force of Indian braves, women loading muskets to hold off the attack. And there's nothing wrong with this side of the account. They are brave. They put up a fight. It's defensive in this case. But per Blackhawk's account, this all doesn't matter, this attack on the fort. They have no interest in taking the fort. They want the corn, meat, and any other equipment in the nearby houses. So they put up enough of a siege to distract the settlers while they then go and raid the area from home and get 
food, and other equipment that they need. I'll make a comment here about Blackhawk's intentions and his account. Given the dearth of historical records in Native American accounts and the presence of one here, at least one, I tend to favor Black Hawks over others, but it should be said it's possible Black Hawk in his various accounts and his statements to newspapers and what's said that he said disguises some martial intention on his part. If perhaps circumstances were different and more warriors joined, you might have seen the type of war that was imagined in the Illinois newspapers and in the mind of Andrew Jackson and Winfield Scott. As it stands, even if Apple River is a victory, they are not getting major tribes to give him any more th- than information in a kind of attaboy. Uh, he does get stragglers. He does get groups that don't agree with the major tribe's decision to cooperate. There are sparse encounters all around now. As he sends out foraging parties and little raiding parties, You know they'll run into a few militiamen. And he'll also try to find small groups at Kellogg's Grove. He traps a group of militiamen, but He's often losing more in these little battles than on the other side. Something else. Andrew Jackson has sent General Winfield Scott to put an end to this. He is going up through Canada with 600 troops. But of this, Black Hawk needed not be immediately worried. Cholera and not the Sauk were a bigger enemy for Winfield Scott's mission. It affects the ship. Almost half of the people that... Winfield Scott brings have to be dropped off at various points before they're able to disembark in Chicago. More worrying is the, as it turns out, Scott's not even going to make it for the Black Hawk War of any significance. But what is happening is word of that force is is going to reach Chicago. People are fleeing some of the countryside in Illinois to the town of Chicago. Now, You might say, well, this is good, right? Chicago's a city that can handle them. But at this time, we're talking about 1832. Chicago is just in its beginning and really cannot support this amount of people. So they're having food and disease issues there as well. But the real threat for Black Hawk right now is the force that's already in Illinois. The Illinois militia are gaining more numbers. General Atkinson has recruited 200 Indian troops from various tribes to help him. Also, Mennonites from Wisconsin, Dakotas from lower Minnesota are eager to join up. Uh, Dakotas are eager to join up, traditional enemies of the Sauk. This is now not just a whites versus Indian war, but a whites plus Indian allies versus Black Hawk and other Indian allies. We should also keep in mind that all the while, even in the Sauk tribe, there is division. Keokuk, with a group of Sauks, is clutching pearls, taking the stance of, oh, my sad wayward brother, and keeping lines of communication open with the great father in St. Louis. It's still not clear if Black Hawk is warring. William Thomas Hagen. The best source for the data on the trail that Black Hawk marched, right, are the accounts by the participants in the campaign written during and after the war. And of these, the Journal of Albert Sidney Johnston is the most valuable. Johnston, a regular army officer who was later killed while commanding Confederate forces at Shiloh, served as a lieutenant on the staff of General Atkinson. 
By virtue of his position, he had access to all the information available to the troops, and his brief daily entries represent the most trustworthy account. Among those who later recorded their experience were Black Hawk, Wakefield, Peter Parkinson, Henry Smith, uh, John Reynolds, the governor of Illinois. Wakefield is the most valuable for purposes of study. And Black Hawk, Black Hawk's biography, which we've read from here, doesn't contain much about the trail. It's not only new area. See, it's very friendly area for Black Hawk and his tribe and not well-known area for the militia. Here's William Thomas Egan. The troops' profound ignorance of the country through which they were passing is reflected in the accounts left by them. Only rarely are points located with sufficient precision to permit one to pinpoint them on a map. Even if the soldier had been more familiar with the country through which he was passing, he might not have troubled to be more specific. After all, if the recipient of his communication knew nothing of the country, there was little reason for describing a point more exactly than in relation to Green Bay, Chicago, or Galena. In the last days of the pursuit, the pace of the march discouraged correspondence. Even general references are few and frequently contradictory, calling for a careful weighing of all the evidence. Think about the trail they're marching on, the character of the trail. It was not what is commonly termed an Indian trail, a narrow footpath worn several inches into the earth by the intermittent passage of small bands of Indians over the years. This was no trail made by a score of braves threading their way through the swamps and through the thickets in single, thickets in single file. It was a trail made by several hundred mounted men, women, and children, encumbered by all their worldly possessions, and an army at which at some stages in the campaign numbered as many as 3,000 troops. Every account of the trail written by an eyewitness speaks of it in the plural. We may safely assume that the Indians particularly adjusted their mode of travel to the terrain they encountered. We properly envision a column, or series of columns, with a front varying from a few yards in the swamps to several hundred yards in the open prairie. Over difficult terrain, the band probably broke down into a number of smaller groups, each making its own way. If this is true, a single line on a map can only approximate the route of the Indians. One officer described the march of troops over such country, as I venture to say, has seldom been marched over, at one minute ascending hills, which appeared almost perpendicular, through the thickest forests, passing defiles, where 100 resolute men might have defeated 10,000, whatever might be their courage or capacity. Next, clambering up and down the mountains, perfectly bald, without so much as a bush to sustain a man. A couple things to think about here. Black Hawk knows what he's doing. This is a, a war in which the U.S. government needs to find Black Hawk. He's got the entire Illinois and Wisconsin countryside to move maneuver in. Uh, he does have the disadvantage of having a large village with him. But you see in the account of Atkinson here, according to Egan, that... Uh, it's really a battle against land. Um, land is the much. Here, here's from one the account of one militia officer. Another officer says some of the lofty hills can only be crossed by using hands as well as feet. 
The section is not even used that much by Winnebago Indians, except during military operations when they have to. Atkinson wasted several days trying to bypass the head of the Bark River, since it's not practical to ford it with his entire force and equipment. The terrain, principally swamp interspersed with occasional patches of woods, was extremely difficult to traverse, and the troops were being tortured by the swarms of mosquitoes that infested the swamps. On the advice of the Indian guides, Atkinson abandoned the attempt to turn the river and march the army back to the rock. His early air of optimism now completely vanished, and he wrote to Winfield Scott, The country is so cut up with prairie wood and swamp, it is extremely difficult to approach. This British band, indeed many parts of the country for miles, is entirely impassable, he says, even on foot. Unable to locate the, locate the elusive Blackhawk, his militia force dwindling away as the men tired of mud, mosquitoes, and short rations departed for home without the formality of a discharge, Atkinson was harassed by the knowledge that President Jackson considered his campaign a tragic failure, a campaign a failure, and had dispatched General Scott to relieve him of command. During this period of exasperation and exasperation and futile marching and countermarching, the army exhausted its provisions, primarily because of the militia's carelessness and lack of discipline. Atkinson was forced to halt operations and send detachment for supplies. A brigade was sent to Fort Hamilton, and the brigades under Generals Alexander and Henry under Squadron of General Dodge were ordered to Fort Winnebago. While awaiting the return of the troops dispatched for supplies, the regulars were employed in constructing a fort now occupied by the town of Fort Atkinson. In an attempt to locate the British band, a small party under Captain William Henry, who was later to distinguish himself during the Mexican War, was detached by Atkinson to scout the area. Harney returned with the report that he had followed an Indian trail for more than 20 miles and had passed four encampments, which he judged to be those of the Sox. A few days later, Atkinson directed Major McHenry to take a small party and look at the same area. They find the same deserted encampments. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. But what really starts to give away the Indians 
is what they're discharging. Burden with women, children, old people, Egan writes, and a few wounded, all suffering from the effects of the scanty diet of the past three months. The band was struggling desperately to cross the Mississippi before Atkinson should overtake them. Every day the whites passed the remains of horses killed for food and an increasing number of bodies of Indians who had died of starvation or wound. These in the camp equipage scattered all along the trail. And this is Edwin Hoyt in his biography of Zachary Taylor. General James Henry led his militiamen to the area and found a trail where Indians had passed recently, near the Rock River. They followed it and met the Indians at a place called Wisconsin Heights. Jefferson Davis was involved in this encounter, and he spoke about it later. The Indians had fought with such determination, he said, that they held off superior forces of white men. The squaws and Indian children were with the army, which was not really an army at all, but a band of Indians forced by the whites to fight for their lives and their living. The squaws, Jefferson said, and he's talking about Jefferson Davis, the squaws tore bark from the trees and made little boats of it and floated with their children across the river while under fire. As soon as this was done, half the force of braves swam across the river to the same island where the squaws have gone, holding their guns above their head with one hand. When they reached the shore, they immediately set up a covering fire, and the other half of the Indian force swam across. Had it been performed by white men, Jefferson Davis said, it would have been immortalized as one of the most splendid achievements in military history. This force of Indians was caught unaware and nearly surrounded, yet escaped, an army twice its strength, leaving only 68 men dead. It was a heroic retreat, the Battle of Wisconsin Heights, but it only set up a greater disaster. Sock accounts say that they tell militiamen, we are crossing the river, we are retreating, don't come after us, we'll be gone. Apparently, there's no translators. That's the Indian side. They realize they're saying things in their language, and usually some Ochucks would go along with the U.S. Army or militia. In the ones, in the accounts they have, they're saying this to militiamen, and there's no one present to translate. Or they don't care. Their missions now are to hunt and kill. That seems to be more likely with what happens next. With this, we go to the account of James Lewis, Ph.D., a older book that's been preserved by Northern Illinois University. With their force of about 750 Illinois and Wisconsin militiamen, General James Henry and Colonel Dodge finally caught up with Black Hawk's band just east of the Wisconsin River, July 21st, 1832. Once found, trail had been easy to follow. It was littered with pots, blankets, and other items that had been abandoned by the group as they wanted to move faster. Along the trail, there were dozens of socks and foxes, mostly old people and children, who were suffering from starvation. Some of them are already dead. They're killed. They also include small groups of warriors who stayed behind to slow their progress. This fighting retreat is not working so well because they're exhausted, exhausted. On August 1st, Black Hawk's band of about 500 men reached the eastern bank of the Mississippi a few miles downriver from Bad Axe. There's a council meeting. Black Hawk, the Winnebago prophet, White Cloud, come up with a strategy. We'll break up into small groups. And we'll go north, we'll hide out in villages, and not cross the river. But this brings a lot of dissension among the whole band. 
And you see how Indian decision-making is. It's not just Chief Blackhawk dictating things. They want to cross the river as quickly as possible. And they take off. And some get across the Mississippi in canoes that day. But there's an issue because the steamboat warrior approaches. It had just been chartered by the Army a few days ago and happened to be heading up. Armed with an artillery piece, 20 soldiers, it approaches just as everyone's crossing the river, and they haven't yet been caught by militia. Under a white flag, Black Hawk wades out into the river, tries to surrender. The soldiers cannot understand what he's saying. Maybe their orders are different. Maybe they don't care. After about 10 minutes, the soldiers on the warrior steamboat decide this is some kind of trick. We're going to get our boat taken over and killed. They open fire on the unprepared socks. The worst part of this is Blackhawk surrounded by his best warriors. Some of them are killed instantly. The rest find cover, open fire back. Now it's a two-hour fight between the steamboat and the Indian warriors. And it heads off. And now what happens is the most dreadful event of all of the Black Hawk War. Because Black Hawk and some of his warriors decide to go north into the villages. So this crossing is not going to work. But most of the band separates from Black Hawk and decides to cross the river. Here's John Hall again. Obtaining information from the Dakota tribe, Black Hawk's crossing was revealed at Bad Axe, Wisconsin. After months of frustrated censure, Henry Atkinson finally had brought the bulk of his combat power to the enemy. He could thank Ho-Chunk guides for the opportunity. He now gathered his army within the thorn brushes and bluffs. Interdicting the escape route of Black Hawk's band, they strafed the helpless Indians who were attempting to swim or paddle to the western shore. Indians were shot wherever they were. Some held their heads up in the middle of the water, just allowing enough room for their nose and mouth to breathe out of the water. They were discovered and killed. The same of those who tried to hide in sand. Before dawn on August 2nd, the Battle of Bad Axe began. I want to make it clear here at reading this. Descendants of the Sauk tribe, members of the Sauk tribe currently, descendants of Black Hawk, do not consider, uh, and they trace their lineage. They, their descendants, uh, Black Hawk's descendants are alive and well. They do not use the term battle. For them, it is a massacre. At 2 a.m., Bugles roused Atkinson's men who dressed gathered their equipment, collected their horses, broke camp, and set out before sunrise. Within a few miles, they see the Sauk rear guard. Warriors try to slow the army, but they are unable to. They try to lead them away from where the main camp is. It doesn't work. The militia stumbles upon it. They kill everyone they see, women, children, men. And what's worse is not only are Atkinson's men firing from the shore, giving no quarter, no place to hide. It's hard to hide like in the beachhead of a river or in the water itself. So they try to hide in the sand. They try to hide in the water. The worst part is the warrior steamboat comes back. It's now refueled, rearmed, and ready to go. 
The timing could not be worse. The slaughter on the eastern bank of the river continued for eight hours. The soldiers shot at anyone, man, woman, or child, who ran for cover or tried to swim across the river. They shot women who were swimming with children on their backs. They shot wounded swimmers who were almost certain to drown anyway. Of the roughly 400 Native Americans at the battle, most were killed. Some escaped across the river. Few were taken prisoner. About a 150 so crossed the river. Few survived for long, because Dakota warriors acting in the support of the army tracked down most of them within a few weeks. We know because their scalps were sent to Joseph Street, the federal agent for the Winnebago's in Wisconsin in late August. Scott does arrive, but mostly what his work is examining prisoners, taking testimony about whether other um, Indian tribes were involved in the war, planning to use this as evidence to demand further land sessions from them, and they want to try to find Black Hawk. Eventually, Black Hawk is who's hiding in Winnebago villages, the decision is made but mutually that in order to spare Winnebago's from looking like they're supporting a cause adverse to the United States, engaging in war in the United States, they hand over with great ceremony, you know, this is what we're doing for our great father, can't you see, we are not here to hurt you, and that, that kind of thing. They hand over Black Hawk and his warrior band. Vine Deloria says in The Invented Indian, for five centuries, whites have had unrestricted power to describe Indians in any way they choose. Indians are simply not connected to the organs of propaganda. You see that in this visit. And what has actually happened in 1833 is a couple of things. One is Andrew Jackson has decided, and you know, one could see from a military standpoint the benefits of this, is rather than continue warring with the Sox tribe, is to take this leader, the most hostile from his point of view of the Sox leaders, to parade him around this country and show them that look, this you know, you will not win a battle with us. We are far more advanced. Far more advanced. And in other words, show them what he has a rate against them. Uh, on the other hand, there's something else. It's also good politics for Jackson to parade around Blackhawk and show this enemy that has been defeated in the West. So he's doing both things at once, but he's not speaking except for in a biography that was contested over its authorship, who's not really speaking is the Blackhawk. And some of the accounts in the newspapers, when they relay like what Blackhawk says. It's always very timid and it's always about peace and we buried the tomahawk. And he probably did say some things like that, but he also has other comment in his autobiography that's a little different. Here's his take on like West Point. He talks about some of the guns being not much more than firecrackers to him, you know, and, and comments like that. Whereas the newspapers will say he's super impressed and awed by all of this. In an article in the American Indian Quarterly, it quotes Yifun Tan, who has the phrase, affection is not the opposite of dominance. It's dominance with a human face. That in other words, if you admire something, 
That doesn't mean you're not the dominant culture just because you're showing how much you like it. And we see all around America, American town names, county names have Indian names. A regulation in the 1960s required that American helicopters be named after Indian tribes. I mean, it's actually a regulation in the books, not on the books anymore. So in the mid in the early to mid-1970s, when a better uh, combat helicopter than what they had in Vietnam is sought out, something with two motors, something that can maneuver better, it's named Black Hawk. Secretary of War Lewis Cass decides, with Jackson's blessing certainly, that after a stay in the Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis, near St. Louis, they're going to parade Black Hawk around. You've got no chance. Look at how populated our cities are. We're going to show you Philadelphia, where we just make money. Here, here's coins. Grab them in your hands and feel them. We just make coins here. What are you going to do against us? They see the armory. They're even able to fire some of the weaponry. As I said earlier, if they weren't prisoners, it would be like a heck of a tour of the country in 1832. You know, the city of New York, the Black Hawk is seeing, is a city that now has horse-drawn streetcars all over it, that has buildings of multiple stories, that has uh, the Five Points area where immigrants have moved in, a, a brisk population. There is a lot uh, of attention drawn to Black Hawk. And we see, like, in the one newspaper account, the comparison between... See, Jackson has a lot of benefits with this. First of all, he's showing that his government and his Indian removal policy is successful. Here is a captured warrior chief. Uh, from Black Hawk, his account of what Andrew Jackson tells him. Major Garland, who is with you, will conduct you through some of our towns. You will see the strength of the white people, you will see that our young men are as numerous as the leaves in the woods. What can you do against us? You may kill a full few women and children, but such force would be sent against you as to destroy your whole tribe. We do not wish to injure you. I hope you will not again raise the tomahawk against us. We desire your prosperity, but if you make war again against our people, I shall send a force which will severely punish you. I was pleased with our great father's talk and thanked him. Told him the tomahawk had been buried so deep it would never be resurrected and that my remaining days would be spent in peace with all my white brethren. We left Baltimore in a steamboat and traveled in this way to the big village where they make medals and money. He's referring to Philadelphia. We again expressed much surprise at finding this village so much larger than the one we had left. But the war chief again told us we would see one much larger than this referring to New York. I had no idea that these people had such large villages and so many people. They were very kind to us, showed us all their great public works, their ships, and steamboats. We visited the mint where they make money and saw the men engaged at it. They presented each of us with a number of pieces of the coin as they fell from the mint, which were very handsome. And one of the key things is the difference between some of the newspaper accounts I witnessed a militia training in the city in which were performed a single number 
a number of singular military feats. The chiefs and women were all well-dressed and exhibited quite a warlike appearance. But I think our system of military parade far better than that of the whites. There's a big difference between the East and the West of the United States. In the East, they're amazed, intrigued, um, humored by this group, Black Hawk and his, and his party. Um, we've read all those newspaper accounts. There's also some little bit of satire and some making fun of Indians and things like that, certainly. In the West, it's a little different. And it really is how close you are to that frontier where fighting or killing might have happened. In Detroit, effigies of Black Hawk and the other prisoners are burnt. In Illinois Whig paper, they talk about how necessary it is that they are captives and that they hold them as captives and do not release them. They can make war at any time. Black Hawk has shown himself to be warlike. Now, Jackson and Lewis Cass do end up releasing Black Hawk to his tribe, and Black Hawk will live the rest of his days, as he promised, bearing his tomahawk living in Iowa uh, at a farm in a, with a white settler who is a friend, not far from Burlington, Iowa, in Davis County. Um, few Native Americans benefited from Black Hawk War in any form, even the friendly Sox and Foxes, who had remained west of the Mississippi and ultimately surrendered a number of his supporters to the government. They were still made to suffer. In late September 1832, General Scott and Illinois Governor John Reynolds met with the Sox demanded most of Eastern Iowa as an indemnity for the war, offering an annual payment of 20000 for the first for the next 30 years. That sounds like a lot of money, and this is true of all these Indian treaties. There's these huge amounts, but when you start talking about an entire tribe of thousands of people and land that is parts of modern-day states, even in 1832 dollars, $20,000 is not a heck of a lot. They wanted nearly... Six million acres for it. They make Keokuk the tribe of the Sox and they give them a 400 square mile area that they'll eventually be moved from. The Sox and Fox tribe is now located principally in, in the state of Oklahoma. Winnebago's are forced to surrender all of their lands south and east of the Wisconsin River in Illinois and Wisconsin. And they get a strip of land in Iowa in return. Of the Black Hawk War which enabled him to gain some rank and reputation in the military, Zachary Taylor would say the whole thing was avoidable and was a mistake. Had the army simply adequately garrisoned the Rock River, Black Hawk never would have crossed. In effect, the army sent a signal. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right? is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep, 
about the importance of talking to people who differ from you and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. We're going to do a whole series on Zachary Taylor coming up. Spoiler alert, right? Um, But one of the things he's going to learn in the Black Hawk War, he's going to look at his own men, the militia, and how hard it was to chase a moving target. And he's going to look at what happened to Black Hawk and his army of braves and thousand villagers and how hard it was to be chased with all of those supplies. And it's going to, he's going to learn a lesson, Taylor, about supply lines and the size of your army and mobility that is going to pay dividends in the Mexican War. So what's going to happen from this? Well, first of all, Taylor, Jefferson Davis, and even to a little extent, Abraham Lincoln are going to make their careers over this Black Hawk War. And they're not the only ones. Numerous Iowa, Illinois, and Wisconsin governors and territorial governors are going to come from veterans of the Black Hawk War. Lincoln is going to use the Black Hawk War and veterans from it to build his network. Even though he joked on the stump that all he ever did was suffer mosquito bites. It may have or may not have, it's really hard to say, We've, that it accelerated the development, the settlement of Illinois, making Illinois mostly a safe area and then expanding beyond the Mississippi into Minnesota, the Dakotas, and Iowa, which becomes a state in 1846. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Appendix. More from the autobiography of Black Hawk. I have often thought, since my return to my own people, I think that wherever the Great Spirit places his people, they ought to be satisfied to remain and be thankful for what he has given them, and not drive others from the country he has given to them, because it happens to be better than theirs. This is contrary to our way of thinking, and from my intercourse with the whites, I have learned that the one great principle of their religion is to do unto others as you wish them to do unto you. Those people in the mountains seem to act on this principle, but the settlers on our frontiers and on our lands seem never to think of it if we are to judge by their actions. Here we come to another road much more wonderful than that through the mountains. They call it a railroad, the Baltimore and Ohio. I examined it carefully, but need not describe it, as the whites know all about it. It's the most astonishing sight I ever saw. The great road over the mountains will bear no comparison to it, although it has given the white people much trouble to make. I was surprised to see so much money and labor expended to make a good road for easy traveling. I prefer riding horseback, 
However, to any other way, but suppose these people would not have gotten to so much trouble and expense to make a road if they did not prefer riding in their new-fashioned carriages, which seemed to run without any trouble, being propelled by steam on the same principle that the boats are on the river. They certainly deserve great praise for their industry. Passing down the Mississippi, this is on his way home from the East Coast visit. I discovered a large collection of people in the mining country, on the west side of the river, and on the ground that we had given to our relation, Dubuque, a long time ago. I was surprised at this, as I had understood from our great father that the Mississippi was to be the dividing line between his red and white children, and he did not wish either to cross it. I was much pleased with this talk, and I knew it would be much better for both parties. I've since found the country much settled by the whites further down and near to our people on the west side of the river. I'm very much afraid that in a few years, they will begin to drive and abuse our people, as they had formerly done. I may not live to see it, but I feel certain that the day is not far distant. When we arrived at Rock Island, Keokuk and the other chiefs were sent for. They arrived the next day with a great number of their young men and came over to see me. I was pleased to see them, and they all appeared glad to see me. Among them were some who had lost relations the year before. When we met, I perceived the tear of sorrow gush from their eyes at the recollection of their loss, yet they exhibited a smiling countenance from the joy that they felt at seeing me alive and well.